Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Welcome back to our discussion on small cell lung cancer. I'm Dr. Jacob Sands, thoracic medical oncologist from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And joining me today is Dr. Tiziana Leal from Winship at Emory. Thank you. Thank you for um, the invite. Look forward to our discussion. So we're going to discuss this one is managing common adverse events associated with second line treatment of extensive stage small cell lung cancer. And we'll start out with a case. 62-year-old nurse with approximately 45-pack year smoking history presented to the emergency room with right chest wall pain. And I'll pause briefly just to point out that all of these cases that we're discussing across each of these episodes um, really qualify for lung screening. Now, these patients are not typically diagnosed by lung screening because the rates of lung screening are so low. But I just want to make sure people keep that in mind. Uh, because it is an important aspect of trying to catch this earlier. But this patient presented with right chest wall pain, uh, had a workup, there was no PE. Of course, that was the first thing uh, looking at in the emergency room, but there was a disease noted on the scan, and this did involve the liver, and ultimately ended up getting a PET scan. And you can see there on the right is that, that the disease throughout the liver was quite extensive. Patient was started on on carboplatin, atoposide, and atezolizumab as first line therapy, and and really had a near complete response on treatment. But about a year into uh, the maintenance, atezolizumab had worsening anemia, and so we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, but let's start out then with talking about some of the toxicities related to checkpoint inhibitors. Now, when I talk to patients, I'll highlight that um, the mechanism of action of checkpoint inhibitors is not to actively kill their cancer, but rather to help their immune systems recognize the cancer so that their immune systems actually kill the cancer. And uh, patients find that quite appealing, actually, that their immune system uh, can do that. But we talk about that the, the side effects then can be related to inflammation from their immune system in areas that we don't want it. I specifically highlight the common ones, um, skin, rash, the colon, terrible diarrhea. And we talk about these others, uh, but but um, they're less common. So myocarditis, pneumonitis, of course, is, is one to highlight. Adrenal insufficiency is one to really be aware of because um, it's not always so apparent, but something that needs to be uh, needs to be thought of. Um, also, autoimmune diabetes. Patients can get a type 1 diabetes. Again, not common, but when it occurs, is is obviously very important to, to catch. And so this is, um, uh, here on this figure, you see an array of these different toxicities that can come uh, from checkpoint inhibitors. And the time course of these can be a little bit different. Now, uh, of course, they can occur outside of these defined time courses, uh, but this gives uh, a little bit of um, uh, time frames of, of when it's more common uh, to, to really consider it. Now, in our patient, uh, I mentioned a near complete response. And you can see there on the right, two months into treatment on a CAT scan, her liver really looked dramatically better. And, um, and, and now is about three years since starting treatment. And you can see her disease is, is really extremely limited in volume. But that anemia 
on further workup, ended up having a pure red cell aplasia. So she was started on prednisone, but unfortunately did not have a lot of improvement and then ultimately treated with IVIG and maintained on a long steroid taper. And with that did have resolution of anemia. Now I'll admit this was with um, the assistance of hematology. So I, I had um, done some workup, but upon recognizing this, uh, this red cell aplasia, um, then referred her over to hematology to include uh, in, include them uh, with the the diagnosis and then ultimately the treatment. Now going to uh, the toxicities of platinum retreatment or topo tecan. So separately now this is uh, in the second line setting. Uh, we see neutropenia really quite common, febrile neutropenia occurring for some. Um, and uh, in the topotecan arm there, you see uh, accumulative 13% with febrile neutropenia, about 6% in the platinum atopocyte retreatment, uh, and uh, nausea and vomiting uh, can occur in, in both. Um, now looking at uh, including lurbanectidin in that discussion, you see neutropenia also quite common with lurbanectidin, uh, about 5% febrile neutropenia with lurby. And uh, we've previously discussed in the other episodes the fatigue that can occur from lurbanectidin. And looking over at the comparison then with topotecan, again, we've mentioned the cytopenias and certainly fatigue. PO type topotecan also does uh, include um, more GI toxicities as well. And uh, on a prior episode, we talked about the Atlantis trial of lurbanectidin plus doxorubicin. This was versus topotecan or CAV. And overall was a negative trial in that the curves really overlap. Uh, similarly, you see on the left side, the duration of response does seem to be a bit better with the lurbanectidin plus doxorubicin. And Dr. Leal did a really nice job outlining, uh, especially the tail of that curve in the prior episode. Uh, but looking at the toxicity profiles now, we see on the left there is just the lurbanectidin alone. Um, and in the middle there is lurbanectidin monotherapy on the Atlantis trial. And so with that, we see a 4% febrile neutropenia. So that rate really stands up, the 4 to 5%, so low febrile neutropenia. And on the right there, you see um, the Atlantis trial, lurbanectidin plus doxorubicin, in the middle, they're still maintained only about 5% febrile neutropenia. It was more, a little over 9% with the topotecan or CAV. Fatigue levels, somewhat similar, maybe numerically a little bit more. Um, and, uh, and neutropenia, really quite common uh, across all of these. Now, philgastrum or pegphilgastrum, uh, this is, um, you see on the bottom there is the comparisons. And so pegphilgastrum is really commonly utilized. ASCO guidelines recommend the use of prophylaxis for individuals or settings where the risk of febrile neutropenia is at least 20%. And so that's common practice. Now, that being said, in a certain setting, such as lurbanectidin, where the risk of febrile neutropenia is considered substantially less than that. But if I have a patient where I'm particularly concerned about neutropenia or the risk of neutropenia, then I, I will um, use pegphilgastrum in that setting. Uh, but it's not standard practice uh, for me in, in that uh, in lurbanectidin because of that lower rate. Now, another option is trilocyclib, and this is a prophylaxis this is approved um, given with platinum atoposide or topotecan. This is a transient and reversible inhibitor uh, of CK4 and 6, um, and has really demonstrated 
decreasing uh, or less um, incidence of anemia, thrombocytopenia, and neutropenia. So it, it's helping protect all cell lines. It's given prior to infusion. And one aspect of, of the publications that I really appreciated is particular attention to the um, quality of life. And so on the left side here, you see um, that in each of these patients did better with the trilocyclib than they did with the placebo. So overall well-being, functional well-being, and fatigue was improved with trilocyclib. And so um, on the right, you see less um, transfusions and such. But I, I think one of the big takeaways for me on this is that we are likely underappreciating that uh, how, how much anemia is impacting fatigue. And I think we think of, well, our treatments cause fatigue. And so there can be some element of fatigue that doesn't necessarily uh, raise our attention to do something. Um, the anemia not necessarily being so much that we would transfuse, but might actually really be affecting patients' um, fatigue levels as well. And so I have been more attentive. Now, I don't use trilocyclib for everybody, but I have found that in patients where their platelet counts are not holding up or their or their hemoglobin is not holding up, um, it, it has worked remarkably well for those settings. And, and of course, it helps with neutropenia as well. And so if I am going to treat somebody with prophylaxis to prevent neutropenia, it is also a consideration then that trilocyclib would be something that helps protect other cell lines as well. Uh, now, uh, other regimens that uh, that I think are well tolerated, which we've discussed in prior episodes with arinotecan, uh, I, I dose that day one, day eight, and paclitaxel, I'll do the weekly dosing six on, two off, uh, because those are just generally better tolerated. Now, also to mention, early palliative care for small cell lung cancer has also been shown to improve outcomes. And you see on the right there, even those surviving to, to end up with early palliative care has improved survival, and then it certainly with symptoms uh, has um, has improved outcomes. So to summarize, checkpoint inhibitors have a unique toxicity profile. Cytopenias are common adverse events when treating with cytotoxic therapy. Pegfilgastrum is an effective way at reducing the duration of um, neutropenia, as well as preventing some of the complications from it. Trilocyclib helps with all cell lines, has also demonstrated improvement in health-related quality of life. And palliative care is an important consideration for patients um, when, uh, when when they're getting into later lines of therapy. I'll say I, I find um, who to see palliative care is not something where I just have everybody see them, but I am more attentive to patients that I think uh, can really benefit from that and have a low threshold for incorporating palliative care. So Dr. Leo, let's start out um, then looking at, uh, we, we've gone over the toxicity profile of lorbenectidin quite a bit. Um, can you discuss, though, your management of some of those toxicities? Is there anything that sticks out for you, and, and how do you manage it? And also, as part of that, the cytopenias we've discussed, that neutropenia is quite common, although neutropenic fever is low, and is that a concern of yours? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, overall, my clinical experience managing um, side effects of lorbenectidin mirrors what we saw in the phase two study. Myelosuppression is the most common and typically um, mild anemia, thrombocytopenia, mostly grade one and two is what I've seen. Um, the neutropenia has not been something that I've really encountered a whole lot, 
But I will say that in the patients that I did, um, if they were having neutropenia only as a side effect, I tended to add growth factor support. If they were otherwise tolerating the treatment without any other cytopenias or other side effects um, and having good response to therapy and overall having clinical benefit. For the patients that I did have fatigue as a significant side effect, um, what really helped was dose hold and dose reductions. So I think all the side effects that I've encountered have been manageable. Dose holds and dose reductions have been very effective, especially for the patients that have persistent fatigue and are on more prolonged therapy. I haven't encountered a whole lot of neutropenic fever kind of mirroring, I think perhaps even less than what we saw in the study. So overall, I think even in patients that are older, um, it has been a strategy that I've found manageable um, to, to sort of work with patients. Uh, Dr. Leal, uh, maybe just to focus on one question for you, because it, it does seem to, um, to vary, but trilocyclic, is this something that you're utilizing in your practice? Are there specific patients that you're identifying for this? or, or what, What's your experience? Trilocyclib is an interesting agent. We do have FDA approval for it as a myeloprotective agent in combination with platinum etoposide plus minus IO and in combination with topotecan. I have used it in selected patients and I try to individualize the approach on who um, I will utilize trilocyclib in. The clinical scenarios that I've found it most helpful are in patients that I'm re-challenging that patient that I discussed that had limited stage and I'm re-challenging with a platinum etoposide and IO, and they had significant cytopenias with their first course of platinum etoposide, I have added um, trilocyclib. In addition, I've also added it in patients who are heavily pretreated. Um, I don't use topotecan very often, um, but I've used it in situations where patients were very motivated to have a next line of therapy and had had sort of the common ones that I discussed that were my preferred agents. You know, this is a patient who had platinum etoposide IO, lurbanectidin, arenotecan, paclitaxel, really wanted a next line of therapy. And I was really concerned about cytopenias. And so I did use trilocyclib. So I think it is a potentially valuable tool that we can individualize. It does add chair time. Overall, trilocyclib has been well-tolerated um, in patients that I've added it to chemotherapy. And currently we're collaborating with Jared Weiss on a study investigating the use of trilocyclib with lurbanectidin, looking at similar endpoints as well. That's great. It sounds like uh, we have a similar perspective on that as well. So we uh, thank you, Dr. Leal, and thank you to our uh, viewers for joining us for this episode and our discussion of small cell lung cancer. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.